The first thing is that I noticed on uh, your website that you have two onion uh, websites. Uh, one is a V2 and one is a V3. And, yeah, uh, that's yeah, and if you have anything you know to add about um, changes in uh, the V3, in the onion V3, uh, for example, in relation to cryptography improvements or uh, uh, service directory protocol updates. Um, why, why somebody should choose uh, Onion V3 as an option? Okay, yeah. So, the V2 uh, Onion address specification is, is based on 1024 bit RSA. So, that is really time for that to um, become end of life. So, the new V3 specification uh, is based on ED25519 uh, elliptic curve cryptography. So, it's a really a massive improvement uh, on that front. So the public key for the uh, Onion V2 spec is a SHA-1 hash. Um, uh, the first 20 characters of it, so it's really not sufficient level of cryptography whatsoever. There haven't been any known brute force attacks on it um, where someone has got a successful collision, but I think there have been people making an effort towards that and we have seen um, with the Google shattered attack that Shawan has been broken in that sense so it is absolutely time for moving away from that. Okay, okay, good, good. And it's uh, the same in relation to the um, service protocol directory updates? Yeah, so the V2 uh, service directory protocol the sort of directory servers would be able to tell um, which hidden services they were serving in, in some cases. Uh, the V3 specification uses something called key blinding, where they don't actually know which hidden services that they're serving. Um, so it's quite a complicated thing, but essentially the, the Tor network uh, collectively agrees uh, a random number each day, uh, and that's used um, to produce the blinded key pair um, so that again increases security because of, because it's essentially key rotation. If you were to eventually brute force one of these, it gets changed every day. So it's a limited effect it could have if it were to be breached. So that that really does increase anonymity because if you were to compromise or be able to take over um, enough directory service, you still wouldn't actually know which traffic you're serving. Okay, very good, very, very good. And uh, in relation to your experience, since you mentioned about Tor and um, Tor-related projects uh, that you're uh, currently working on, uh, how did you, in your personal experience, uh, what uh, what progress have you seen, um, say, since the last year, the last one or two years, um, the, the Tor project team has been expanding. Um, I remember about six, seven months ago, uh, they hired a few new um, system administrators actually in the uh, United States, uh, based in the United States. Uh, what is your, uh, um, they also have system administrators but they work on a voluntary basis. Uh, what is your experience um, with Tor? Yeah, so I think the project is really moving forward and um, I know in its early days it, it had a lot of bad press for the um, more criminal side of things people would use it for, but it's, it's really starting to come out of that now into something that's in the mainstream just as a, a privacy and networking tool rather than something that's used for illicit purposes. Um, when it comes to the V3 specification, I think adoption of it initially has been quite slow, but I am starting to see more organisations use it for their hidden service. Um, but 
as far as I'm aware, the overwhelming majority is still the V2 specification. But people are moving forward, and like anything, it takes a long time for the legacy stuff to get to get moved out. Um, but yeah, the the tall team is growing, and uh, the the effort and thought that they put into the v, into the V3 spec is extremely impressive. Everything is being considered, and it's extremely well written. So very positive, in my opinion. That's good. And um, also, I've seen that I've seen on your website too, um, more from on the educational side, um, that you cover, uh, for example, reverse engineering, um, things like uh, crack me challenges, uh, or recently covered the review of Cutter. And how? Oh, yes. What do you think about uh, the value um, of reverse engineering as a process? to learn, uh, and for example, how to secure um, a database, uh, how to understand uh, the current tools that are used, for example, to um, do injections in databases or trying to uh, brute force passwords. Uh, and more, the whole uh, pen testing um, interest is, is growing exponentially, mostly because you know of the social implications and more and more people uh, and companies are getting aware uh, of all the different aspects of security. So not, let's say, just from uh, uh, the defense side, so from the blue team side, but they're also trying to simulate uh, how a red team how an, an attack side will think and will behave and will stay up to date uh, with vulnerabilities and um, with un- understanding basically trying to look for any possible vulnerability on new releases zero days and so forth uh, so more and more and more um, uh, people that are junior in uh, in cybersecurity or they're just fresh out of uh, a networking course and they're starting to uh, to learn more about how to secure apps, how to secure uh, databases. Uh, they're looking for new or you know or alternative versions uh, to learn uh, better how to approach uh, securing systems and reverse engineering uh, or reversing reverse engineering malware, reverse engineering um, um, different. Um, uh, different processes has been proved uh, in the la- in the last few years uh, extremely valuable approach um, now what is your opinion uh, what do you think about how, how you think a, a crack me challenge would help uh, for example a, a cyber security um, officer or uh, um, a penetration tester yeah I think the key thing that I learned from uh, crack me challenge and stuff is it really gives you an insight into how a computer works on a very, very low level, um, which when you're talking about uh, vulnerabilities like a buffer overflow or um, something like something like that, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get your head around it without actually seeing how, how the memory is moved around and how the processor is actually hand, handling different instructions to actually see ultimately how a buffer overflow can occur. Um, Solving a crappy challenge or looking at reverse engineering, it's not it's not essential to be able to understand it, but it really helps you to get right down to the level that you're working with. Um, as far as somebody who's beginning, um, if, if we're talking about someone who's beginning in cybersecurity, I don't think that, ne- that a crappy challenge is necessarily something that you should definitely start with. Um, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to look at some other areas first. Um, but if you're looking into binary exploitation, things like that, it's I think it's absolutely essential that you do look at crack 
Okay, okay, very good. And I also know that uh, I read on your uh, website that you covered, uh, for example, um, Google Chrome extensions um, that are readily available for the from the Google Chrome Web Store. And uh, oh, yes. it, that's another um, that's another extremely contemporary um, uh, topic, um, especially after uh, more and more um, security experts have been releasing articles on Twitter, uh, warning uh, users and companies to um, really keep an eye, uh, especially if, if they're using Google Chrome, on what they have installed and also on how much memory each single application running in several different tabs is taken from the system. Now, for in relation to Chrome site um, whitelist extensions, for example, uh, what yeah. are your latest insights um, on some you have tested uh, or uh, some that you have been seeing kind of trending on Reddit uh, where a large amount of users are, are talking about um, on what to trust and what not to trust? What is uh, your opinion? Yeah, I think that Chrome extensions are a big problem, unfortunately. Um, the initial thing that got me into the security side of it is a few years ago, and potentially even currently, if you search on the Chrome Web Store for a common extension, let's say Adblock or Ublock or something like that, it, if you search for that, it, you don't just get the result that you want. There's lots of spam and scam and knockoff versions of the application that come up. Some of them rank higher than the official version. So even for technical users, it can often be hard to quickly identify which one is the real version. And I have seen um, extension authors use spoofing techniques and, and things on the web store to make it look like their extension has got more users than it really has, um, or more ratings than it really has. Um, we do also see quite frequently extensions that are uh, extensions that are compromised, um, and malicious updates are, uh, malicious updates are pushed out to uh, to users. So it is a massive problem, um, and I think that you really shouldn't be using extensions unless they're from highly reputable organizations such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation because uh, I think it's unlikely that they're going to be selling their extensions. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that Google needs to do better uh, at cleaning up the web store. Yes, yeah, and the same thing came out uh, also for WordPress uh, plugins. That, uh, for oh, example, yes. the, yeah, for example, the social network tabs, uh, which is again um, sort of like a, a kind of user-friendly automation to share posts on from WordPress straight to Twitter or um, or other social media networks. Uh, they literally exposed uh, um, confidential data. Um, including uh, passwords and emails linked to the users. And um, I believe uh, uh, there is a French cybersecurity, um, I don't know if it's an expert or, a, or if it's a consultant, uh, that goes under the name of um, Elliot Alderson, uh, which is taken from the um, taken from the Mr. Robot um, TV show. And he's quite active uh, on Twitter. And um, I noticed that he started to post uh, more and more uh, about WordPress uh, plugins uh, vulnerabilities, uh, which is it looks some, it looks like it's something that hasn't been covered properly um, at the at the core at the actual uh, process when either Google Chrome uh, or uh, sorry either Google um, Store or Google Play 
uh, or WordPress itself uh, decides what should go on the store and what should not go. And, and it looks like they don't have uh, really a process to check the uh, security uh, or what uh, level of vulnerabilities certain plugins or certain extensions could cause to the system. So it's something that it goes back uh, to the very first step of actually uh, testing what goes on the store. Because as you said, for example, on the Google Chrome store, um, there is all spam. And sometimes there is also a lot of clones of the same um, uh, extension that it could mimic a proper legit extension. But then in the end, that's uh, properly, you know, it's, it's a fault one. Uh, and it's, it's something that is, is kind of a common trend. It's been a common trend for several years uh, in general. Uh, when people receive um, phishing emails with a domain which is which contains a, a slight variation of an original domain, so for example, like uh, it would be like on Twitter. Instead of having Twitter.com, you have uh, Twitter.tk or .cn. And yeah, this was yeah. several years ago, and um, and that's pretty much the same now for uh, apps and for uh, plugins and extensions, including um, you know Firefox extension, etc. Because they don't uh, consider the uh, uh, the security uh, at the core of the actual process of getting in um, stuff in their stores. And um, from your side, like you said, you, uh, you want to dis- you want to discuss um, topics. Um, what, w- what would you like to cover? Uh, is it from either from your website or something that um, you think it would be interesting uh, to cover? Uh, yeah, so I think just uh, staying on the uh, topic of Chrome extensions, um, I think uh, Google have recently made some uh, improvements to policies on uh, their extensions. Uh, so things like uh, code obfuscation is no longer permitted, um, and uh, extension authors have to have two-factor authentication on their on their accounts, uh, which is obviously a big step forward. But something that I'd really like to see is uh, mandatory code signing, so that all of the extension updates that are pushed out have to be properly signed with something like PGP, uh, just so that if the extension developer has their account compromised, it's not possible for the attacker to then push out an update to one of the users. Uh, that, that's something that I think would really help to reduce this problem. Um, it, that doesn't necessarily help with the spam and clone extensions, but it, it, at, least would, it at least would help when a, an extension developer has their Google account compromised. Uh, the, the Firefox store is not quite as bad, but um, I think improvements could be made on their, on their side as well. Yeah, and uh, my note is also that on your website you have a section uh, that covers the exploitable web content, uh, to, you know, just to block it or to test block it. Uh, what is your opinion, for example, on a browser like uh, Brave? Yes, yeah, so the Brave browser, the Brave browser, is an interesting one because it has um, ad blocking and other features like that included, uh, which, which I think I think is really good. Um, the adoption has been quite low, it's primarily technical users who use it, um, but I think that is the way forward and it would be good to see other browsers. Uh, in fact, Chrome has already implemented a basic level ad blocker into, the, uh, into, into its software. Um, but yeah, things like adverts that are flashing all over the screen and taking up massive amounts of bandwidth, I, I think that they absolutely should be blocked with, with ad blocks. It, it's, it's not an effective method of... Um, providing content to users, it's, it's a massive security risk, it's inconvenient, nobody likes it. Uh, I think that things like uh, the sponsorship group that lots of people on YouTube are doing nowadays is the way forward because it's non-intrusive, 
it doesn't require me to run untrusted code in my browser uh, and I can still see the advert um, so they, they still get paid so I think that is the way forward from that point of view okay yeah and that's particularly relevant in um, in view of all the uh, different updates that they did for uh, uh, data uh, protection uh, policies and retention uh, in Europe with the GDPR and in US they're, uh, they're having a full review too because in US for example for um, data retention and uh, users data uh, there has been so many different uh, approaches um, since the majority of companies that leverage heavily on advertising on online advertising and they are really have very long um, periods they take a, a very long period of time to update their uh, their marketing policies and also to update um, simple things that are and uh, just uh, lead acquisition uh, forms with our websites uh, or marketing campaign that are scheduled with six or nine months uh, periods in, in advance so all that will take a you know a, a very long time uh, to update and to adapt uh, in case more and more uh, laws to protect users privacy uh, get approved yeah, so it's a very interesting uh, period because somehow um, it's it's showing that in majority of cases um, and this is what I've been seeing in personal experience um, security has not been uh, built in uh, but it hasn't <clears throat> we didn't have an approach of security by design but we somehow come out with more and more releases and have all this data floating around and then later on uh, the whole aspect of managing the data and of course one of the thing well the main things securing the information and avoid to be um, sold uh, you know left and right uh, which is something that happened uh, recently with uh, a very large mobile provider that was caught being selling um, users data to uh, third parties including uh, bounty hunters which they were resell it <laughs> to which they were resell it to privates uh, for a lower very low cost which is something that has been seen before um, in the dark web and in cases of uh, markets, illegal markets where um, you had uh, carding forums and where you could um, um, literally purchase uh, detailed information um, about the uh, not just the card but the actual um, user and for extremely low prices and there were cards uh, from pretty much all over the world obviously most some of those forums they were just a scam they were they were, they were not real uh, but several other ones they managed to leak um, cards details of millions of users um, raising the uh, the question of what is the actual value of private data on the black market and right now also on the more the, the legit aside the, the, the clear net because when we're talking about bounty hunters uh, bounty hunters they, uh, they have also access to databases that are shared with private investigators um, or private companies that um, collect data uh, and they are not you know under the same laws and rules of government so they're really hard uh, to keep track and coming back to um, the deep web and um, so not just the dark web but anything which is uh, not covered uh, by popular search engines something that 
majority of people identify with uh, the Tor browser uh, or identify with more obscure uh, search engines um, like Torch um, or um, Not Evil uh, or the infamous um, uh, Hidden Wiki. Um, there are some companies that are trying to um, dig into the so-called deep web and trying to understand uh, how to figure out um, things that are um, looking for data uh, in the same way uh, that companies are already doing on, on the clear net where data is um, more easy to access uh, um, or you can even just uh, uh, purchase APIs, accesses. So right now the, the deep web is still uh, a big question mark when it comes to, for example, getting information um, for companies that works on uh, criminal cases uh, or companies that they want to understand if there is a trend um, on um, on, on a deep web uh, social network uh, um, uh, such as um, used to be Galaxy 2, Galaxy 3 and so forth or forums. Um, what is your opinion in relation to search engines um, in, the, um, in, the, in the deep web? Uh, since the, the, mo the only one that seems to be around um, as far as options um, is uh, a series of tools that are provided by DuckDuckGo. Um, which is the popular search engine. But there's not much um, about uh, projects that are looking into either finding a solution or building a search engine that scans or crawls the deep web, but not just for uh, uh, illegal markets, but also for forums or for websites uh, where you might find um, university or academic uh, papers um, released. What is your opinion um, on all this? Yeah, I think it's a contentious one because often these search engines will just index everything that they find and quite often the organizations or websites that have this content don't actually intend to publish it. Uh, there's been many cases where there's been authentic authentication failures or um, personal data that gets put onto an unsecured Amazon S3 bucket and things like that. So these search engines are indexing information that is publicly accessible, but the question is whether it really should be publicly accessible. We have seen many breaches in the past where it's literally been a uh, completely insecure Amazon S3 bucket where the entire company database is on there. Uh, and the only thing protecting it is knowing what the URL is. And as soon as Google or more likely one of these deep web search engines picks that up, it all suddenly becomes accessible. So I think that it really is on the companies and the organizations to stop publishing their stuff by accident. Uh, the search engines are just a tool and they index whatever they can find. Um, and if people use that for nefarious purposes, then I don't think that's um, on the search engines, that is on the companies who have published the data. Okay, the, um, right now there is a uh... It seems that the, the deep web or or the dark web it, is that part of the whole internet where more and more groups that are concerned with privacy, or even uh, journalists that work in countries where freedom of speech uh, is, is is an option or is not existing at all, and they prefer to use um, IRC chats um, or um, communicate over forums where they trust the webmaster and the team to keep their information on secured uh, servers. Do you think that um, there is going to be 
always uh, a difference between what is going to be listed as ClearNet uh, or the, the tools are just going to get better uh, maybe uh, with the integration of AI and companies that are in charge of uh, monitoring for many different reasons, including security, including um, government policies. And do you think they, got, they, they will eventually get better and, and understand how to scan um, what is known now as deep web or, or the dark web? Uh, or you think it's something that is currently a limit because of the, the, the consumption that, for example, the, the hardware limitation um, or, uh, um, or something else? Uh, do, you, do you see a future where this will happen and, and then we will consider internet as a whole on a consumer level, obviously? So there will be, because it's already a one uh, unique domain, but do you think these two worlds will eventually merge together uh, or it will always uh, probably be, I'm saying, in the in next two or three years, we will still have a differentiation between the clear net and the non-indexed part of the internet? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is technically feasible for them to eventually merge and become one, but ultimately, because of the, because most people who use the internet are not technical users or privacy enthusiasts, they are going to be limited by what services and organizations can provide them. So when I say that, I mean things like the Signal messaging app, which provides an extremely high level of security if it's used correctly. Now, that's the key thing there, because if you're going to attack Signal, you're not going to attack the cryptography behind it. You're going to attack the implementation of it, or you're going to attack the human. Because ultimately, if you want to see someone's, if you want to hijack someone's Signal account, it's going to be far easier to um, spoof their phone number or take control of their phone number than it is to actually break the cryptography behind it. Um, so I think that until all of these long-standing vulnerabilities can be ironed out, such as the ones uh, that currently exist in Signaling System, Signal System 7, which allow for text messages and potentially phone calls being intercepted. Until those get sorted out, I think there's always going to be a difference between the general internet, where privacy is not a given, um, and then the uh, private, like, onion services uh, and other uh, overlay networks, where if used correctly, and um, that's the key thing, they have to be used correctly, um, then anonymity is definitely possible. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's um, recently uh, I covered also for, for my upcoming book, as I mentioned to you, um, when we had one of our first uh, chats, I think it was over email, and um, I was, for example, in, um, in touch with um, some of the uh, members of the Cicada 3301 uh, project, uh, which they value privacy as sort of a, you know, as a sacred value, and, and they're thinking about this dystopian future uh, where privacy is going to be illegal. Uh, by illegal, it means that you can have, obviously, the personal privacy, but in the moment you are wired in or connected to cyberspace, uh, basically, willingly or not willingly, you will um, leave traces, and those traces can be used for pretty much any disclosed and undisclosed uh, meaning. So, in all this, um, they, for example, mentioned me about 
this is before it happened about for example the uh, uh, proton mail and browser access being uh, vulnerable uh, and this this later on um, appeared actually in, um, in reddit and on twitter etc now if we go to apps that are directly on smartphones for example weaker or for example a less known app a less known peer-to-peer uh, instant uh, messaging and video calling protocol which is tox tox uh, and then you have as you mentioned signal and there are other um, alternatives uh, in less known markets uh, but bigger like uh, in uh, china or in india uh, where there are different types of restrictions when it comes to um, do communication um, using end-to-end encryption. What do you think, uh, how do you think the, um, the whole scenario of um, the whole scene of uh, uh, instant messaging applications like Weaker um, will go in the future when companies get acquired? So say for example, uh, when GitHub got acquired, um, a lot of uh, long-time users of GitHub uh, they either moved to alternatives uh, or they anyway had uh, a long talk, uh, long, several comments uh, on the company being acquired. Now, right now, uh, for example, Weaker or the team is behind Weaker is still independent. But would the end user trust uh, a company that gets purchased? And maybe it gets purchased because they just need more resources so it's kind of like a necessary step but somehow is interfering because uh, it might compromise the security of the uh, their products of their applications do you think that for example um, peer-to-peer instant messaging will have a brighter future in the hands of independent trusted uh, teams and groups or uh, the end user will be able maybe through a better education or better understanding uh, of how for example end-to-end encryption works uh, or uh, how to secure data and maybe the user will be able also to trust um, situations where small uh, peer-to-peer instant messaging applications get acquired by multinationals like microsoft or apple what do you think about this Yes, I think it's a challenging one because a lot of these apps, like you just named, such as Signal, the code behind them, such as the the Signal protocol, is open source, it's been thoroughly audited, it's exceptionally well written, and on paper and theoretically, it's a very, very good way of communicating communicating securely. The, The problem is, when you download the Signal app from the Google Play Store or from the iOS App Store or from wherever you download it from, you don't actually have any assurance that you've downloaded the same code that you saw open source on GitHub or wherever like that. Um, so I think that if you're really looking for very tight privacy and assured anonymity, you need to be using an application where you can actually audit the code yourself and you can check that what you have downloaded is what you expected to download. Because ultimately, I don't think I can't see in the industry we're ever going to see um, at a level of transparency that we need from things like Google Play Store. Um, and, and even right now, I'm using Wicker right now, and um, I have no idea really whether the one that I've downloaded is the, is the official version. You just have to trust 
the, the verifications they provide, such as checking PGP signatures, you have to trust that, it, that that hasn't been compromised somewhere. There really is no way that you can know for certain. Um, when it comes to acquisitions, that, that is also a problem. I, I was one of the people who moved away from GitHub uh, when, that was a, when that was acquired. Uh, not necessarily because I thought that anything was going to go wrong with it. I mean, all of the code is public anyway, so it's not like there was going to be a, a breach from that front. Uh, I just preferred not to be uh, you know, subject to the controls of a, a, big, a big giant like Microsoft. I'd rather be with a more independent company such as GitLab. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it depends what sort of security you're looking for. It depends whether you're trying to protect the privacy of yourself or the privacy of, your, of the data you've got on this service. It, it depends what you're looking for. Uh, but I think ultimately the most complete solution is always going to be the open source, transparent, fully auditable, rather than the kind of more commercial, generalized solution for the average person. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, in, in that case, definitely, um, and, and that's what the majority are, are going for. Uh, it, will, it is required to have a better education of um, for, for general, you know, consumer level users, because there is a, right now um, the evolutionary curve uh, for technology is exponential, and the level of understanding um, of how technology works. Uh, uh, is not exponential. It's just trying to trying to chase um, what technology is doing, and there's more and more tools and softwares and applications and technologies that are constantly introduced in the market, and um, with the uh, end user completely unaware uh, of what is uh, the technology running in the um, in the background. And um, one last question, um, and is in, uh, just a general one, and is in relation to uh, OS um, now. More people um, in the last, um, in the recent years, um, with uh, the awareness uh, being raised around uh, Linux systems, and they started to, for example, uh, get all laptops and install um, different types of flavors like Linux Mint um, or some other ones. Um, they started to uh, use alternatives to uh, security-oriented. Um, uh, flavors of Linux, like uh, Linux Parrot, for example, uh, or Black Arc, different versions. Now, right now, the majority of computers in the world run Windows, uh, and the same also for servers, like where we still see like servers running on um, Windows Server 2008, for example, 2012, it's still, it's still popular. And I'm talking on a global scale, obviously, including extremely large markets uh, like Asia. So, in, in this situation, um, what do you think um, it would be a good choice for just a general user that wants to even run as a virtual machine, so it doesn't have to be necessarily uh, the, the core system running on a machine, but they want to have an operation system where they have uh, a certain a le certain level of privacy that allows them, for example, to uh, be active, uh, be socially active uh, in relation to a particular topic they, they're extremely passionate about. And this is in the first world, obviously, so I'm not counting situations like in China where there is government firewalls, um, just like in Europe or, or in the United States. What would be your OS of choice uh, just for general browsing and a better alternative than the Windows or um, the Apple OS? 
yeah, so I think if you're new to Linux, um, then I would recommend going with something like Linux Mint or Ubuntu uh, as an initial introduction. Um, once you've got used to that, I would recommend switching to something like Debian um, because the benefit of Debian is that it, it is 100% open source. They don't include any proprietary code um, in their operating system. So with, with that, you, you do get a, a very good level of transparency and everything's open source. So you know exactly what you're getting when you download it. Um, if you want to go a bit more advanced, um, there are there are projects like Tails OS, um, but with that, you, you are going to have more running some more issues with trying to run day-to-day applications. Um, Cubes OS is a, another alternative as well, uh, as well as Subgraph OS. Um, although I believe Subgraph, uh, I believe the project was recently um, discontinued, and, and instead they now provide a, a Docker image for their secure um, secure uh, computing system. Um, but yeah, if you are looking for a level of privacy, Windows and Mac OS is definitely not the way to go. Um, Mac OS much better than Windows for privacy, uh, but even so, it's it's not it's not fully open source, so you don't know exactly what you're getting. Um, so yeah, Linux Mint if you want to start out. Uh, Debian once you know what you're doing. Sounds good. Okay, Jimmy. Um, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on.